Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. everyone and welcome back to the Phileas Club. This is a show where we cover the news from around the world and we get people from, uh, well, around the world to tell us what's been happening in their country. We do this roughly every month and we are supported uh, by Patreon or by the listeners who support us on Patreon. If you want to support us, you can uh, go to patreon.com slash the Phileas Club and become a patron. That would be incredibly highly appreciated. So my name is Patrick Beja. As many of you know, I'm sure I am from France originally, but I currently live in Finland and have been for a few years. And uh, today we have two guests that I'm uh, incredibly happy to have on the show because we're going to be talking about topics I've mentioned a few times in previous shows. And really, I have no idea what I'm talking about when I do. And they actually do because they're uh, from there. Uh, Please, uh, uh, please welcome to the show in your car or in uh, the bus. Clap uh, as, as I am to welcome Irina and Hannah. Um, Irina is originally from Russia uh, and she currently lives in Prague. So thank you very much for being on, Irina. Oh, thank you for inviting, Patrick. I'm so glad that we can finally get someone from Russia. To be honest, I've been uh, trying to get someone for a long time, and it's not easy. We'll we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. Uh, but first, let me welcome also Hannah, who's uh, joining us from Belarus. Hello, Hannah. How are you doing? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I am uh, a little bit stressed because we're going to be covering topics that are not so fun, I think. Um, but we're going to try to do it with the usual uh, uh, lightheartedness, if we can, that we have on the show. Uh, <laughs> I... So I'm going to tell listeners already, I, I don't think we're going to be talking a lot about what's happening in France and Finland. Uh, it's Essentially, it's covid and lockdowns, and that's what's been happening for the past year. So you already know all of this. So I'd much rather focus on what's happening in Belarus and Russia. And uh, before we do, maybe I can ask both of you to introduce yourselves and to tell us uh, a little bit about yourselves so we have a bit of context. Um, Irina Lagunina, is that the right pronunciation? More or less. More or less. All right. I'll take it. Thank you for being kind. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I'm, I work for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which uh, is an American international broadcaster. 
uh, well, not that much a broadcaster anymore uh, with internet and social media, of <laughs> course, but uh, we kept the, the name radio uh, just because it's a huge history of 70 years of uh, broadcasting. Uh, and that's what I'm doing for the last 25 years, for the quarter of a century. Uh, but before that, I, I was a journalist in uh, in the Soviet Union, actually, and in, in Russia. Uh, so uh, that's it. That's what so I can say. Already, I have a million questions coming to my mind. Uh, the the first two, and we'll go to Hannah before we start. We launch into the full conversation about Russia. But the first two questions I have are: a journalist in the Soviet Union. How does that even work? <laughs> uh, and the uh, second question is: <laughs> so the 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 radio that you are working at now is uh, an American radio station, which immediately I think is going to... Because on this show, we, we often try to get uh, all the opinions, even the ones I vehemently disagree with. And then it's like, yes, but there's always bias. So I'm sure you, when you talk about Russia, people might ask, well, you're, you're, the money comes from the US. So aren't you biased in, against, you know, maybe not against Russia, but... Um, yeah, that's the first couple of questions. Uh, well, you know what, uh, the journalist in the Soviet Union, I was lucky because I uh, actually went into journalism at the end of uh, the existence of the Soviet Union. Uh, so the censorship was not uh, that bad already. Uh, that was Gorbachev times. Mm. And that was the first... Uh, the first experience of uh, more or less free press. I actually experienced myself censorship only once, uh, which was really bad. Uh, I was covering the earthquake, the devastating earthquake in Armenia uh, in 87, 1987, and uh, I wrote an article on uh, uh, how the humanitarian aid was stolen and was not reaching the areas that were completely, uh, you know, that just evaporated from, from Earth because mm -hmm. of this earthquake. And my editor-in-chief actually called me and asked me to come uh, to his office and uh, told me that uh, uh, he consulted with the Communist Party uh, Commission on Censorship, and they said that all humanitarian aid uh, is reaching those who need it. <laughs> And needed mm. it, and I said that you know what? Then let's just not publish the article, mm. uh, which was the case. We didn't publish it, but mm. that was the only only uh, time when I really felt and experienced uh, censorship in the Soviet Union. Otherwise, it was a great time of uh, you know opening the archives, uh, exploring the new topics uh, like Stalin's repressions, and uh, uh, you know uh, all this that came with perestroika uh, in the Soviet Union and then actually helped to the, this country to finally, this monster, uh, communist monster, to finally collapse, uh, which is not the case anymore. I mean, the archives that were opening at that time are now closed again. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I was going to say. What you're describing seems like, a, I mean, I, I don't know firsthand the situation in Russia now, but uh, it seems pretty clear that it was more free for the press uh, at the end of communist Russia than it has become in the past, I don't know, five years or a few years under Putin. But it's worse uh, now. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, it was a great time because uh, 
uh, on one hand, there was a lot of freedom already, but on the other hand, uh, uh, there was no financial or, uh, you know, uh, different political interests yet mm. uh, in media. So we were all very poor, uh, but very happy. <laughs> That sounds like, from the little I know about Russia, even during communist times, well, maybe not very happy, but making the best out of what we have, see, uh, what, out of what you have, seems like the, the Russian, I don't know, ingrained in the Russian psyche. When I went to, to Russia a couple of times, uh, I saw, uh, this is a completely different topic of conversation, and it's terrible. I do this all the time. But, you know, there were great parks, and my, my wife, who knows about Russia a lot more, was saying, you know, you would have... The, the philosophy of of the Russian people shown through when the writing and even in communist times, you would have people in the parks and, you know, I don't know, playing guitars. And of course, things were terrible. But there, when you say we were poor, but we were happy, some, somehow that sounds like Russian endurance. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's my my uh, the image I have, which is not accurate. Well, it's not the case anymore. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, okay, so the the other the other question I had was about uh, being financed by the U.S. Doesn't doesn't that set an agenda or have a, a some kind of bias? I, I I don't think so, but I have to ask what you think about that. No, you know, Radio for Europe is a, a kind of a strange uh, a strange uh, media because. Uh, Uh, we are completely different from uh, from like Voice of America or BBC or Deutsche Welle. Uh, uh, all the international media, uh, international uh, foreign broadcasters, uh, have a specific uh, task to represent their countries. Uh, it's the it's in the charter of BBC, for example, uh, or uh, in the law that. Uh, Uh, describes the work of uh, uh, Voice of America. It is the Voice of America. So mm -hmm. those uh, radio stations or TV stations uh, are tasked to represent their governments. Uh, radio for Europe is uh, completely different because it, it it talks about Russia from within Russia. Uh, the same with like our Belarus service. It talks about uh, Belarus, Belarus uh, from within Belarus. Uh, so and we we are non-governmental. Uh, we have a firewall, uh, which is the bipartisan board of directors uh, that actually exists to uh, protect us uh, from the political influence of uh, uh, whoever is in the White House in Washington uh, or in Senate. So, uh, so it's it's slightly different. I wouldn't say that I'm biased in uh, uh, covering Russia, uh, since I'm Russian. I mean, I have Russian passport, uh, and uh, I'm biased in the fact that I want the best for Russia, of mm. course, and uh, mm, I'm biased in the fact that uh, uh, I always try to support those who do not have access to uh, to media, who do not have platform to express their opinions. Uh, and the, the, this category, unfortunately, is growing in Russia. There are more and more people who uh, cannot have their voice heard. So if you can say that this is biased, that's it. 
You know, that's... Yeah, we're going to talk about it a little bit more, but I think that's a, a key aspect of any kind of journalism these days, and maybe it's new, newer to us in the, in the West, but there's this idea that you have to be, that, that you always have to show both sides. And I'm a little bit guilty of this because I try to go and talk to people I disagree with all the time. Um, and, and, you know, they're usually normal people. They're not politicians or anything. So uh, I, I, we usually find that we have a lot more in common in humans. But even if our ideas are, are very opposed, I've talked to, as people know on the show, I've talked to people who are pro-Brexit or who are pro-Trump. And I definitely disagree with them. <laughs> but uh, there, it, especially in those camps, there's this idea that you're being discriminated against because the media is not presenting kind of both sides equally when really sometimes and often when you get into those issues, both sides aren't equal. And we're going to get back to this in, in the case of Russia and what's been happening with Putin and Navalny and the Ah, the the yeah all of that but uh before that hannah has been very quiet uh thank you for indulging us um could you also give us a little bit of, of context and, and tell us who you are sure um so my name is hannah libakova i'm a journalist from belarus and i'm a non-resident fellow at the atlantic council I also used to work at rfrl and i totally can relate with what uh to, to what Irina was saying um, I do think, I do believe, and I'm confident that RFRL um, is impartial. Um, I used to work for the Belarus service. I was based both in Belarus and, and in the Czech Republic in Prague. And we did not fight um, the Belarusian state propaganda with propaganda, because that's not how that pro-Lukashenko, pro-Russian even propaganda can be defeated. Instead, we promoted democratic values. And that's what uh, kind of uh, was the main goal of it, right? To kind of show the, the value that a free press could provide. And in Belarus, I must say that there is not so many ways how independent media could exist. So mm. it kind of has to be funded in a way by foreign governments or whatever, you know, foreign business or whatever can yeah. fund um, a, a media outlet because, well, in Belarus it's strictly uh, controlled and the, the, state, the state doesn't allow independent media to, uh, to be sustainable, basically. Mm. It's, when did uh, Lukashenko arrive in office? It was early 2000s, right? Oh, <laughs> Uh, that's too optimistic. No, it's 1994. Oh. Okay, so it was essentially after the dust settled from the uh, breakup of the of the Soviet Union, he arrived in office. Mm -hmm. And from it, was it from the get go that uh, the the free press was essentially uh, muzzled? It was basically yes. It's it's uh, kind of it happened since the uh, uh, yeah when he arrived in office when he. Uh, um, became president and he immediately understood that he just needs to take control over media, over the parliament and, and basically or, over different, different institutions, over the um, high court, for example. Like he, he just kind of knew that that's how he would um, um, stay kind of yeah, stay in power longer. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's just kind of surprise, surprises me how come that a former farm director was so um, 
sure and kind of confident what he should do, you know, immediately because he, he just, um, um, like the, we had, we used to have, um, obviously the independent parliament, which we don't have anymore. It's totally controlled and all these kind of um, MPs, right? They, they are being carefully selected and no opposition MP is now in, in the parliament at all. The, the kind of court, the judicial system is totally controlled, media is controlled. So, so it's just kind of the system he has built for all these 26, 27 years, um, in a way is perfect in terms of how a, a dicta dictator, an authoritarian leader could build uh, a system that, that just kind of exists for basically him, right? For in, for the sake of him being in power. Okay, he, uh, we're, we're going to talk about the what's happening now. But again, just for a little bit of, of context, he was elected, wasn't he? He was democratically mm -hmm. elected? So 1994, uh, three years after the uh, official resolu uh, re uh, resolution of the Soviet yeah. Union, yeah. Uh, dissolution, sorry, um, he, yeah, the, there is this first election and he, yes, he was elected um, and it was the second, like the last time when we had a free and a fair free election, election yeah. in Belarus. All right. Um, and we'll get to, to the unrest that's happening now after 26, 27 years. Um, but let's go, let's go back to Russia and let's talk about what's happening now. Um, and somehow that sounds almost, that sounds similar to, to the, the image I have of, uh, the, path that Putin took. Uh, and, and I'll tell you my understanding of the situation in Russia, Irina, and you can tell me how, where I'm wrong. Um, but my impression about Putin is that initially the country wanted stability and wanted someone who was less corrupt and who wasn't a, a drunk, <laughs> essentially. Sorry if I'm being uh, dismissive, but that's my impression that the country actually elected Putin maybe not fairly, but that even if you had had fair elections, he would have come in power and he was, uh, he had a high rate of approval, uh, a genuine high rate of approval, even with all the controversies um, he created and, and the genuine, genuinely worrying things that were happening. And over the past, I don't know, I would say five or six years, maybe this is a little bit fuzzy, he actually started turning the country into more and more into more and more of a totalitarian regime to the point that now uh, the government controls uh, a, a large part. It's not a hundred percent, but a large part of the uh, judicial of, well, I guess everything. Um, and the opposition has also dwindled because he has quashed everything. And I talk about opposition because, of course, we get to Alexei Navalny, who was arrested. He, he is the main uh, face of the opposition that is left, and he's managed things incredibly cleverly, including on social media. And he evaded, well, he, he was lucky and uh, didn't die when there was the assassina assassination attempt last year, was it? Uh, and he was treated in Germany, which I think everyone knows. But the, the, what's, happen, what's been happening now in the past few uh, weeks and months is that he was arrested when he came back. And there's this completely ridiculous uh, trial where he had been accused of something that doesn't really even matter a few years ago. And he's being accused of having broken his parole and not having been in court when he should have been when he was 
in essentially on a deathbed in in Germany because of the poisoning that the Russian government had done. And now he's being sent to a uh, maximum uh, uh, security prison. It's not; it doesn't even do it justice to say maximum security prison. It's a, a, an internment camp, essentially. Probably we we don't even know where he is. Um, and through all this, he's managed the communication very cleverly, and there has been protests. But what can you do? It's not like, and and this is where we are. This is my understanding now. What is accurate and when what is wrong, Irina? Okay, let me start with the beginning. I yes. think that uh, what is not accurate is that uh, all those uh, draconian changes in Russia to, uh, happened in the last uh, five or six years. Mm. No, actually, uh, I I'm uh, I absolutely agree with Hannah, and I can draw the same picture of uh, the Russian regime as uh, she was talking about uh, uh, Lukashenko, because uh, once Putin came to power. Uh, 21 years ago, he actually started to turn the country into something different than it was before him. Uh, and it happened gradually. It, he is very smart. Uh, it happened gradually. It happened with, uh, uh, you know, first uh, eliminating the possibility of uh, political parties to participate in uh, uh, in the parliament. Uh, for example, or to even get to the parliament, uh, he actually okay, that, took that's control. a big deal. How how do you even do that? That is the most anti-democratic thing you can do. How do you even do that if you while keeping the image of you oh, know some semblance well, you, of democracy? You, you just uh, put the proportion uh, of uh, votes higher. For example, uh, you, 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 you there are eighty six regions in Russia, uh, so. Uh, you have to have a certain representation in each and every region. You have mm. to get uh, a certain number of supporters in each and every region. And Russia is a you know, vast country. Uh, so for small political parties, it's just impossible to uh, get a certain number of voters in each and every uh, region. But if you put it in the law, then automatically this party will not get to the parliament. So and it's kind of it, uh, it's kind of voter suppression and kind of gerrymandering on a on a very large scale. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. And uh, what he did also, he first took control all, over electronic media, and uh, uh, there was a, a a little bit of a, a you know, weird situation when uh, all the electronic media, except for one. Uh, radio station was under state control and internet and print media at that time uh, was uh, relatively free. Uh, so you had this, like this idiotic picture of two Russias existing at the same time. One is the Russia of uh, electronic propaganda and the other is the Russia of print media. Uh, so, But that's not the case because he also gradually moved to control the print media as well. Mm. So... Uh, and now there is a, a huge push to control uh, even more uh, internet. Internet was poorly controlled, uh, I think, because uh, the regime actually used it a lot. Uh, and uh, they didn't want to slow down internet or uh, to shut down social media because they used it. Uh, as a propaganda tool as well. I mean, through all the 
armies of trolls, um, uh, false messages, uh, false narratives. Uh, they spread their message uh, pretty pretty successfully, I would say, through social media and internet, uh, as well as through uh, state-controlled television. Uh, so that's why they didn't uh, didn't um, kind of slow down internet. But uh, it looks like right now they. Uh, uh, lost confidence in themselves of how they can use internet. So uh, there is a push to, uh, you know, slow down Twitter, uh, to uh, take control over social media like Facebook and YouTube. Uh, so um, we'll see what's going to happen. But uh, the tendency is not not good right now, and all the moves that uh, they are making are not good. Uh, so, so, so if I, little if... little little by little they did establish the the actually almost dictatorship state right now. So when they were telling that Lukashenko is the last dictator in Europe, uh, I don't think that it's true anymore. Not mm. the last. So you, if when I say that uh, it's my impression is that Putin did have genuine support in if you go throughout Russia, would you say that that's actually not the case? Or is it because of the the way the the voting was manipulated or is it true but it has you know since then the situation has become so bad that it has um uh, it's not the case anymore uh well i think it's still the case no i th i think that uh, he has genuine support of uh maybe not uh, 74 76% but uh over 50 i i would say and uh, i also, there is now the new generation that uh, grew up with him. Uh, they didn't know any other system. They didn't know any other president. Uh, those are people who are 20, 21 years old, and uh, they are pretty much uh, accustomed to have this kind of stability on one hand on the top of the government, but uh, relative freedom of once again uh, traveling and internet. On the other hand, uh, we we see the descent of this generation right now because uh, I think, uh, and that's my personal opinion, because I think that the corrupt pra practices of uh, of the state actually contradict with the relative freedom uh, that this generation was brought up in. Uh, so, uh, and they they don't see that many opportunities for themselves in the country um, because primarily of the corruption mm -hmm. of the regime. So that's why they are protesting, and that's why actually Navalny supporters are so young. Uh, right. They they the state was concerned. Uh, there were protests uh, uh, that erupted after Navalny returned to Moscow and was arrested. Uh, after uh, uh, Germany, uh, uh, and there were pro pretty pretty big protests for for Russia right now uh, in uh, late January and February, early Fe February, and the state was concerned that there will be a lot of uh, school pupils actually that would go out in the streets. Well, not that many, but uh, if you look at the faces of protest right now, they are very young. Right. So it's people who are coming up and who represent something that uh, Putin hasn't had or the increase of the support of that 
part of the population he hasn't had to deal with before. Maybe Do you think that's why they're trying to slow down the internet as well, to kind of make it less visible how things are in... I don't know, that, that sounds like I'm talking about Soviet Russia, but to make it less easy to see how things are in other countries so that people aren't uh, as likely to you know, refuse what's happening in their country? Or is it just that they don't want the communication to happen? Uh, no, I think that it's not about the other countries because, uh, uh, you know, oh, when you go to Russia and you spend like two weeks there, you don't know what's going on in the world at all. Uh, you don't uh, see the real picture. It's just completely virtual reality that they uh, create through uh, through television primarily. Uh, but in terms of internet, you know, it's the same uh, that uh, we were t we, we were talking uh, before the internet uh, became so popular in Russia. We were talking about how do we reach uh, Russia like better? Uh, uh, can can we uh, get like a, a satellite TV? Uh, and the problem with all this is that Russia is self-sufficient and Russians are self-sufficient. Uh, they like they don't they don't read or watch something in foreign languages. You need to talk to them in Russian language and they don't make an effort to get like a satellite dish in order to get something. They take what they have uh, mm. in front of them. So, so uh, what's the so, image of the of the outside world in Russia? What's that virtual reality? What does it look like when you're in Russia? Uh, it's uh, uh, you know you first of all you don't really know the news that are going on in the world, or you see them, but they're kind of strange. Like uh, uh, for example, right now, well, I had a, I had a funny story with uh, uh, with uh, with my parents. Once I got a call from. Uh, mother who was very concerned and uh, asked me, oh, is it really that bad? I said, mom, what exactly do you mean by that bad? Uh, oh, the television is uh, saying that you have huge demonstrations. Uh, really? <laughs> Where? About what? And mother said, well, it's, it's anti-COVID uh, uh, protesters that are crashing and so then I switched on Russian TV and uh, saw that they were showing something, but uh, the signs uh, were in Latin, but like you have an exclamation sign at the beginning and an exclamation sign, sign at the end. And that's Spanish, mm -hmm. but that was attributed to Czech Republic. Really? So that's how it's made. <laughs> I mean, it's total manipulation. I'm just telling you the... Uh, the, the technique of how they do it. Mm. Uh, so uh, that's how you see the world. But the problem is not in what they show. The problem is in, in Russian self-identification. You know, if uh, there was a recent Levada uh, poll, and this is the only um, the only uh, independent uh, pollist in Russia, uh, they asked if Russians feel themselves Europeans. And uh, to my horror, uh, majority, actually two-thirds, uh, said that, no, they don't feel themselves Europeans. And the most 
people who didn't feel themselves European and who didn't think that Russia is a part of Europe were young people. Uh, wow. Those who are over 55 uh, were kind of more inclined to say that they are Europeans and uh, that Russia is a part of Europe, not the youth. And that's scary. Mm. Uh, all right. Uh, that We could talk about this forever. I do want to get to Navalny, though, um, and what's happening now. Uh, he was arrest ar arrested under those ridiculous charges. I mean... <sighs> They're legal because that's what the system said, but clearly they're made up, or I guess not made up. The original one was made up, but let's not even go there. And they're using this to justify everything that's happened since. And and let's, you know, just not even mention the fact that uh, the government tried to kill him. Do you think it's Putin who, who tried to do it? Or was it someone who was overzealous in his... Uh, you know, military <laughs> apparatus, or do you think he gave the order? I don't know if that's something we can even speculate on. Uh, well, it's difficult to speculate because you don't know who gave the order, but uh, it's definitely made on the uh, highest level. Mm. Uh, it's uh, impossible without, uh, you know, state control over uh, this poisoning. Mm. So this doesn't uh, happen it, if if the highest level isn't aware of it. It's not someone uh, who takes that decision. Absolutely. And yeah. this is all very close the uh, circle of Putin. I mean there uh the, the circle is not that wide. So and it's mostly uh, uh so-called law enforcement uh yeah. or security services. So uh I mean, it's all one circle. You, you you cannot separate Putin and say that, well, he gave the order or his friend gave the order. It doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. It's the system uh, that allows something like this to happen and okay. that actually does it itself. Uh, yeah. So whether it's yeah. Putin or his best friend, uh, pff, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter yeah. uh, all right, frankly, so it just doesn't matter. So, so uh, thankfully, uh, Navalny survived and he made the incredibly brave decision to go back to Russia where he knew he was going to get arrested. He had a whole social media campaign prepared, which um, it could have uh, sparked the protests even without it. But it certainly seemed like that was very cleverly done. And there were gigantic protests for weeks uh, and, and when I say protests, again, my impression is that uh, if you take Moscow and St. Petersburg, then you have a very different picture of Russia. When you were saying the country is very, very large, like it goes all the way to Asia and you have, I don't know, rural entire regions that are very that look very different from the main cities. But the protests were happening even in remote areas. So that felt different. Um, and again, that's my picture of it. You can tell me if I'm correct or not, but I'm not sure where it can even go. Like, are the protests continuing? What's the country feeling about Navalny? What's what's happening now? Uh, well, right now, Navalny team uh, and Navalny himself called not to go to uh, demonstrations uh, because of uh, the uh, well, weather conditions, uh, epidemics, uh, COVID, uh, a lot of factors. Uh, but 
uh, actually yesterday, Navalny team called for new protests in spring. Uh, they didn't announce uh, the exact date uh, or even week when this happens, but they announced that they will uh, study the public opinion whether people think that they should continue with protests. Um, and they opened this special website where people can leave their opinion if they uh, think that the protests uh, should go on and uh, will bring some change uh, eventually. And, and the the government is leaving the site up because they could block the IP or something? Are they leaving those up? Uh, yes. Uh, frankly, I cannot say right now because uh, the site opened yesterday mm. and immediately crashed. Right. And we were trying to understand why it crashed. Uh, maybe because so many people uh, went in there immediately mm. and uh, just the system didn't... Um, didn't couldn't absorb so many users at the same time, or was it some sort of attack? Uh, so we'll see what happens. It just happened yesterday, so okay. uh, it's it's uh, very very young. Uh, it's not that easy to block the sites, uh, I have to say, okay. especially if there are cloud sites. Okay, so yeah, so what's the situation now? Like, what is? I guess no one can speak to Navalny anymore. So his team and, and his wife, I'm guessing, are managing the the social network and the internet activity. But it looking at it from here, it seems like, well, he's in prison for at least two and a half years if he even, you know, survives. And he's going to go out at some point and maybe he's not. But for now... It's looking like, uh, I don't, looking at it from here, you can't really do anything um, unless maybe they can protest more in the spring and that can bring stuff. But what do you think can happen? Well, Navalny has this uh, uh, idea, which is pretty smart, actually, of uh, smart voting. And, uh, oh, right, that yes that uh, actually allowed in uh, certain several cities uh, um, during the last municipal elections uh, uh, allowed independent candidates to uh, go to the local uh, power, local authorities, uh, which was an interesting development in Russia. And uh, uh, sorry, ju just to explain the smart voting thing um, for th those who aren't aware, it's making sure that everyone votes for the one person who has the most chances to be elected, no matter who they are, as long as they're not the, the you know, Putin's party's uh, representative, correct? Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, and it doesn't matter whether they're communists or nationalists or liberals or whatever. Uh, but uh, mm, several independent candidates actually got uh, got because of the system and uh, taking into consideration that Navalny really has uh, a lot of support outside, as you rightly pointed out, outside Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, because uh, during the last presidential elections, he campaigned all around Russia. I mean, he was traveling 
uh, he had this uh, Western type of uh, campaign, almost American type of uh, campaign, mm. where a candidate would go to certain uh, region and meet uh, with people and talk to them and, uh, uh, you know, try to uh, get their concerns and problems. Uh, and uh, so that's what Navalny did. It was uh, actually fascinating to, to watch it. Uh, so he has a lot of uh, support on uh, outside in Russian provinces. And if his idea of smart vote uh, voting will reach the provinces, then uh, I think he is trying to change Russia, Russia from the bottom, not from the top. Uh, it will take a long time, but uh, maybe, maybe something will get out of it. Mm, okay. Yeah, it seems like it's not an immediate uh, uprisal and then Putin sees fire in the street and has to resign <laughs> or anything like that. It doesn't seem like that's possible. Um all right, uh, we can keep talking about Russia, of course, but I do want to uh, go to, to Belarus for a second. So, Hanna, thank you so much for being patient. Um, I'm sure that what we've been talking about sounds a little bit familiar, but at the same time, it seems like Lukashenko's uh, dictatorship is more traditional, or that's the impression I have. And... The, the protests now, because, of, of course, for those who don't know, there there have been protests for the past few weeks. I don't know what the state is right now, but how are things uh, evolving? And is that a similar situation with what's happening in Russia or how, how would you describe it? Um, well, I think the uh, when protests started in Russia, uh, they were often compared to the situation in Belarus. I think the main difference is that in Belarus, we have the revolution, like um, it's um, it's been happening for more than 220 days um, since the 9th of August, basically. And um, in Russia, as Irina already uh, explained, that, that, that looks um, a little bit different. We also thought, many people thought in Belarus that uh, it would be faster, it would be quicker, uh, but well, as I kind of tried to explain before, um, Lukashenko has built a perfect system um, that sadly functions uh, well. So, so it's not really easy to kind of, um, you know, force him to, to step down so quickly. Um, nevertheless, people continue protesting and the level of repression um, has been incredible, just unbelievable for, uh, for, for Belarus. Since August, there have been more than 30,000 people arrested. Um, and it's just a country of nine and a half million, so that's, so that's a high number. Mm. Um, there, there have been now um, nearly 300 political prisoners recognized by human rights defenders um, organizations in Belarus. And there are more than 2,000 criminal cases that have been started. So we might end up with even more political prisoners um, eventually. Um, so uh, I don't know to, to, to what extent you are aware of what happened in August and in the and month after after uh, August, but but that so was uh, like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit aware, but I, I do want you to to uh, to, to explain because uh, it's it will make things easier. Um, I do have a question before that, though, kind of a mm -hmm. similar question to what I was asking Irina. My understanding of Lukashenko is that even with the 27 years of 
uh, well, dictatorship, there was some measure of support because things were stable and things changed mm -hmm. more recently, or at least, you know, people were a little bit resigned or I don't know how to describe it exactly, but my impression is that, you know, it was a dictator, but some people, at least a large part of the population was, well, at least, you know, it's things aren't, the things aren't burning all around us. Is that fair or was he never popular? Well, he was popular. That that's obvious. He was elected in the first place. Um, there were right. I, years I mean, more recently, he, yeah. Uh, there were years when he was more popular, um, and there were years when he uh, like people did not really like him. Um, so it was kind of you know there were waves of support. Uh, I would say that in the past decade, uh, his support decreased immensely. Uh, the last well, it's really hard to say in terms of figures, exact figures, because sociological research, independent one, uh, does not exist in Belarus. And right. uh, basically, the last organization was uh, shut down in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, so many years ago. Um, in 2015, I would say when we had a previous election, presidential election, he uh, might have won. Um, his support didn't, was probably not that high as he, um, um, you know, li likes to present not 80% or more than 80%. Mm -hmm. But people were scared because of Ukraine, because of Crimea, because of the war, uh, and there were no protests. So basically, uh, you can kind of say that people, whether people support him or not, um, uh, if, if they protest or not. So in 2010, they, uh, there were mass demonstrations after the elections, and there was also violence, and pe many people were arrested. Um, then in 2015, people did not kind of show, express their discontent, but mm. it changed quickly because the last poll that that um, independent uh, sociological um, like research organization showed was actually that he had only uh, less than 40 percent of support mm. and since then um, uh, yeah no research exists and basically we don't have numbers but we can see that people like this discontent with poverty and mismanagement and and kind of dissatisfaction with the authorities on different levels and and um, uh, leader president himself has been on the rise and in the past years there were waves of protests which were largely ignored i think uh, by uh, by neighboring countries by the world but it just shows that uh, people um that there was dissatisfaction there was dissent and what happened last summer is just um, kind of the last uh, straw or the, the, just kind of the most visible um, sign of it, right? Because um, that just existed. And what happened last summer, um, um, like the, the, there is a full list of reasons why people were dissatisfied with Lukashenko and with, with his gov uh, government. Um, it started kind of the last straw for, for many people was the um, um, how the government um, tackled, uh, fight, fought with COVID-19. Uh, there were this, uh, you know, headlines uh, across the world um, about Lukashenko, who came up with this brilliant idea to cure the coronavirus with a tractor and vodka and sauna. Um, and, and kind of many people laughed, obviously, at that, but um, it was not that funny in Belarus, you know, when people saw that uh, hospitals are not prepared, hospitals are full uh, doctors don't have any protective equipment and people just die. And moreover, uh, Lukashenko media, his uh, government are just hiding the real figures, uh, real statistics. And many people were scared. And when you kind of have 
a real picture, right, which you which you face, and then you have this uh, kind of beautiful image on state TV that shows that everything is fine, don't panic. People kind of get angry. Mm. Um, and again, uh, the, the, there have been many more reasons. Um, the stagnating economy, um, a financial crisis, uh, kind of this general tiredness of Lukashenko because, well, he has been in power for so long and not really has changed in the past decade. He has been promising this two, uh, no, $500 salary for for 10 years, and basically that's kind of his his usual promise, right? And and people are just tired, like, well, we want to have more. Um, there is this generational change and, and kind of uh, people just see that other countries develop better, develop faster, and they have to, to, they want to have the same in their country, and they were just you know so unhappy with uh, uh, with uh, what, what was happening. Also, the country, so, this is mm-hmm. uh, yeah, unlike sure. Russia, people do have a, a a clear image of how things are going in in neighboring in other countries. Um, well, they travel a lot to Poland and Lithuania. Um, they have, I think, the, the highest number of Schengen visas per capita in, in Europe, perhaps. But like they, um, um, people often travel, people often work there. There are students who, who study in Poland and Lithuania, um, and they do compare. And when I traveled before the elections, when I wanted to understand, you know, what has changed and why this society is so mobilized, is so politicized, um, people were, even the elderly, uh, unlike in Russia, and that's what Irina mentioned, I'm not perhaps that much aware of this um, age, um, um, like groups among protesters, but in Belarus, there are all kind of age uh, groups protesting on the streets from the elderly to uh, to, to youngsters. Um, and those elderly people were telling me that, uh, well, we want our children and grandchildren to live in Belarus. We don't want them to, you know, look for their happiness uh, yeah. somewhere abroad. So... So yes, people did travel, people had, um, uh, people study, people work abroad, uh, people had all these different uh, programs. Um, in the US, you know, these kind of development programs when they just went to get some internship, whatever, um, 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 to, to, to Europe or the US. So, so they would gain this experience and they would come back and they would see that they don't have so many opportunities in their country and they wanted this to change. Irina, is that like we're talking about awareness when you're in Russia, but do Russian people travel less uh, outside of the country or do so because they they don't seem to have the same understanding of what's happening outside? Oh, well, for first of all, Russia is really huge compared mm. so to So you Belarus. can travel inside the country. You you can travel inside the country or uh it's just it's it's not like you can get on the car in the car mm. and uh, drive to Poland. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, it ta- takes long time. It takes actually even from Moscow. It takes uh, going through Belarus first, and then you reach Poland. Uh, so uh, uh, Russians do travel, but uh, you know, I've, almost an anecdotal situation: a young couple here in Czech Republic, Russians, uh, before. COVID, uh, tourists came here, sitting in the bar on Vesislav Square in the center of Prague, uh, drinking Czech beer, 
And all of a sudden, the guy who is probably 25 is saying, you know what? An hour beer is better. <laughs> I don't know how this, uh, you know, <laughs> slogan of patriotism and uh, Russian superiority over everybody else is uh, affecting the taste receptors. <laughs> but apparently it does. Uh, they, they, they love what they have. Mm. I don't understand anything about beer, even though I live in Czech Republic. But I heard that Czech beer is one of the best in the world, right? Mm. Yeah. And it's it's really, it does feel like the, the little bit that I've had uh, in, of interaction with Russia. I've been there a few times. I've, you know, my, my wife is very much, she speaks Russian. She's, she likes uh, the Russian culture very much. But there's certainly that, that, that uh, sentiment that Russians feel, I don't know, like an exception. Uh, and, you know, it's very dangerous to make such sweeping generalizations. But since you're talking about this, I feel it's, it's, it's not completely inappropriate. But there is, and it might explain a little bit of that uh, um, national centra centralism. <laughs> um, there's this sentiment that the, 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 the great, Russian nation or empire is different from our... It's nationalism, I guess, but it seems ingrained in uh, the Russian psyche. It is, and uh, that's, uh, that's very sad, actually, because, uh, uh, you know, it's not only how Russians treat Europeans, like, oh, we are different, uh, we are going our own way, Uh, and uh, we don't uh, need to be nice and fuzzy with you, but it's also how Russians treat each other, uh, which makes this uh, society much more fragmented and much more difficult to be organized uh, in in uh, common cause, uh, not necessarily political, just common cause. Yeah. Uh, so mm, that's, uh, uh, you know, nas national character, but... Uh, um, Sometimes it's disappointing. I think the the real issue, and, and we can see this in any country that has a, a big nationalistic sentiment, including, you know, the U.S. Uh, in some respects, is that it clouds your judgment. It clouds your understanding of the situation. And I see this all the time when I speak. I, I, ha I have a lot of American guests on the show. And, and one of the most infuriating thing is that idea that the healthcare system should not, you know, uh, national healthcare systems or better healthcare systems should not be implemented in the US because some people think that, you know, it should it couldn't work or it's different or it, and it's so plainly obvious to everyone else who doesn't have that that uh I don't know, that that view of things that that is just inaccurate and it seems like that is to me at least the most problematic thing with this sentiment is that it blinds you to the reality of of how things are outside of your bubble that you uh, put on a pedestal. And it seems like Belarus doesn't really have that issue. There's there's an awareness from what I'm understanding from what you're saying, Hannah. In Belarus, there's an understanding of what the situation in Belarus itself is, for, for better or worse. Is that and, and that's why now people are unhappy with how things are, and, and there's this wave of protests which... Is, hasn't stopped yet. 
Um, well, there is generally, obviously, an understanding. Again, uh, coming back to this, uh, you know, pandemic, the first wave, people somehow mm. knew uh, that, you know, the situation was not that great as state media presented it and uh, that actually the coronavirus exists uh, because Lukashenko has been ignoring it and he's been saying that, um, you know, I don't see it, so it doesn't exist. Um, so people knew, um, and it was actually uh, thanks to independent journalists, social media and bloggers because they revealed this information and um, that's why people trust independent media so much. And that's why actually people people know what, what, what's happening. Mm. Um, be, when Lukashenko was repeating these falsehoods about the coronavirus, um, it did not make people less worried, obviously. obviously. And then they turned to, to bloggers and they turned to independent journalists and even social media uh, like Telegram. And that's why um, they kind of established a virtual monopoly over people's minds in a way. Uh, there was this, um, usually uh, before at least, state media played a huge role um, when it comes to how the information is being spread. But in the past years, trust, like, the, like distrust, I would say, in, in state media um, decreased, uh, sorry, increased. So distrust, distrust increased, mm -hmm. um, and um, and then yeah, we come to we come to independent media, um, and then um, because of the pandemic, because of this kind of differences in in um, in, in figures um, in the information, people started um, people totally kind of turned to it, and it continued through throughout the election campaign. And many people were telling me that oh, we just do not watch the the state TV, and that's right. a huge difference perhaps with Russia. Mm. I don't know if Irina agrees, but I think the latest um, um, kind of figures and this latest information that we got was that around 30% of people watch state TV in Belarus, but even less, um, some 20% would believe it. So that's right. uh, something that perhaps was not the case before, at least not to such extent that um, there is such a distrust. And uh, at the same time, people just totally trust independent media. Well, I I, uh, I would say that there are less and less Russians who uh, watch and believe state TV as well. But uh, unlike uh, Belarus, uh, Hanna, where I'm sorry to say, but even mm -hmm. uh, the website of uh, President Lukashenko doesn't open uh, mm -hmm. normally, uh, the Kremlin just really manipulates internet and social media so uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, the propaganda comes not from tv uh for those who don't watch tv it comes from uh, the computer screen mm. uh, so it's a much more complex and uh, elaborated uh, operation mm. that kremlin has compared to uh, lukashenko I it definitely, I, w I would definitely agree. Uh, I think that the regime has totally uh, lost the moment when they could take over, uh, like um, uh, social media, right? They 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 did not invest in propaganda on um, the internet in the internet. So unlike in Russia, so that's why bloggers, that's why Telegram is so important, and and you know, uh, but there is control over internet. We have, I think, there is. They might be even more control because we have the state monopolist. Um, who about telecom that is uh, that can you know easily switch off the internet? That's why um, there was a total blackout right after the election, 
And every Sunday um, um, in, in the kind of next months after the election on the 9th of August, uh, the Internet was uh, switched off and people just did not have access. Um, so it's kind of they are also controlling it, right? Uh, but they, don't, they perhaps don't have enough money to invest in propaganda on social yeah. media, on Control the Internet, farms. though they... Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, I do want to ask, we're reaching, quickly reaching the end of the, the discussion, but I want to ask a couple more things. And before I do, um, I, I want to ask you, Hannah, how, how do you see things evolving in Belarus? Because again, it's been protests and they, they, there seems to be a strategy on Navalny's team in Russia that is very deliberate. Um, I don't know how uh, directed the protests are in, in Belarus. It seems like it's more uh, grassroots movement. How do you see things evolving in, in the next few months or, or even longer? Mm -hmm. So, yes, indeed, the protests are grassroots. Uh, they're very widespread. It involve, they involve basically all social, professional age groups. Uh, in Belarus, now the format has changed because, uh, the, the, because of the level of repression, because people cannot just gather. They're immediately dispersed and, and just, you know, arrested, put, put in prisons. So that's why people protest in, in their local neighborhoods. But I think um, kind of all fears, uh, concerns that winter would stop the descent were wrong. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people gather in, in, uh, in their kind of districts because it's easier for them to disperse and kind of hide in their apartments. But it's good. It actually gives the people um, the kind of experience of horizontal connections, this very practical, very concrete self-organization on a local level. And Belarusians are just learning how to organize communities. Um, and in the future, well, firstly, that's a basis for self-governance, but that, that's also something that would, um, uh, people just meet each other, people just develop this trust. And if there is a trigger and if people are ready to come back to the streets, if the violence stops, um, um, because it's also very expensive to maintain this level of violence and repressions for, for the regime. Um, so if um, a kind of um, there is a chance to, to protest again, people would do that because, well, whenever I speak with them, they, they just tell me that uh, they are against, they are opposing Lukashenko and nothing has changed. Uh, they just have to be smarter and, and kind of more um, smarter in a way of how they um, maintain security, I would say. They just do not go openly and protest. They, they apply these guerrilla methods of, um, of showing of how they show their discontent, but they, they're still ready. So I'd say that these, um, there is no way back, uh, unlike in previous years, unlike with previous uh, protest movements, um, these would not stop at least that easily. Um, and it's just, um, you know, what, whatever trigger appears, maybe the uh, another wave of whatever financial crisis, poverty, or, uh, you know, whatever happens, like it might bring people again uh, on the streets. Okay. You know, the, I, I, I'm realizing now that I, I, there would be an entire entire discussion to have about the actual situation in both countries and in similar countries and why people are led to these kinds of, of dangerous for them uh, demonstrations and protests and what the economic situation is and beyond the the freedom of information because I think we in our countries we kind of take so many things for granted that we might have a, an image of uh, these countries that is, oh, you know, okay, so you can't have 
the the news you want on on the TV, but does that really matter? The the situation is much more serious, and and maybe we will have an opportunity to discuss it, to discuss the the reality of of life in those countries in a a future episode. But uh, I do want to turn back the lens to uh, you know the the Western world a little bit and have your view your opinion on how things have been happening in two areas and we don't have to spend too much time on it but um very quickly with your um your your the the context of where you live and what you know i'm i'm curious what you think of two things first of course the the way the covid pandemic has been handled uh, in the west because my experience when i talk to people from every single country is that everyone thinks their country has handled the pandemic the worst and that it's unacceptable and that it's horrible and that things are uh, completely dramatic. Um, and that's my experience talking to people from every country <laughs> I've, I've spoken to. So that's one, what you think, how you think people have handled it uh, or, you know, Western countries have handled it. And the other question is, and it's going to be hard to summarize in, in a few sentences, but what do you think of uh, President Trump's presidency and, and the character? Uh, because a lot of people, especially, of course, on the right, have been saying, you know, he's a tiny dictator, and if he could, he would, essentially. Of course, he can't because the system is resilient, as we've seen in the U.S., but it, it wasn't just for play. Like, if he, it, he was in a situation where he, he would probably have gone as far as he could in, in uh, less democratic um manipulations and i'm curious if you know i don't think we'll ever know even though the the last days of his term were very concerning in that in that uh aspect but i'm curious to know what how you both uh see it so maybe let's go to irina about covid and about trump if you can summarize i know it's a hard task uh well covid uh, okay uh, two two things here uh, in terms of russia uh, COVID, I think Putin handled COVID very, very well. Uh, uh, first of all, he uh, gave uh, extra powers to local authorities to deal with the situation, uh, which was very smart in two ways. Uh, it's more or less the same in the U.S. that in Russia, where the states had uh, a say in what measures they take. And because the territory is so big and because the situation in different regions with COVID is different, that's a smart thing to do, uh, to uh, consider measures that are applicable to the situation on the spot. Mm. Uh, so that was first smart move. Second, why it was smart, it's because it took uh, responsibility from Putin uh, to the local authorities. So... Uh, he was not blamed for whatever was going on in the country, like Lukashenko was, for example, for denying COVID because he was not responsible. It's the local governments, uh, local authorities that were uh, responsible. And so that was uh, that was good for him, but also it was good actually for, for people, uh, for the country itself. Uh, in terms of the country where I live, Czech Republic, I think that Czech Republic at the beginning was the best. Actually, yeah. it was the best in Europe. Uh, it was fantastic how uh, last spring when people 
saw what's moving on us here uh, from Italy and from Austria. Uh, it was unbelievable how people organized and really uh, imposed very strict measures on themselves primarily uh, uh, with uh, keeping social distance, with uh, uh, keeping themselves at homes, staying at homes. And uh, Czech Republic actually fought the first wave of pandemic fantastically, quickly. Mm. And there were th only 300 deaths uh, from the first wave. Now, I don't know what happened during the summer <laughs> uh, and uh, what what got into the minds of people, but I, I see right now that the government doesn't know what to do. Uh, the uh, people don't, people actually don't care. Nobody sanitizes hands when they walk into the supermarkets, for example. Everything is closed. Uh, we, we live in complete lockdown, including the geographic lockdown, like I for example, I live outside Prague and I cannot go to Prague right now uh, b b because of the lockdown measures uh, that requires us to stay in our villages mm -hmm. and regions. Uh, so, but but it's just a disaster right now. It's <laughs> okay. a disaster, and I I, I can tell you that uh, I know what I'm speaking about because Czech Republic is the worst in Europe right now in terms of the. Uh, rate of the uh, new infections on uh, 100,000 people uh, mm -hmm. of the population. Uh, so right. terrible, terrible. Yeah, I can blame everybody. <laughs> okay. Not only the government, but also people the around. The people, yeah. I, th I think... Yeah, uh, don't uh, care. A, a lot of people are quick to blame either the government or the, the people in every country. I think the reality is probably in between. There's uh, blame to go around everywhere, but and also it's a it's a difficult situation. But all right, and what about Trump then? Uh, in terms of Trump, uh, well, I my husband is American and Republican. Okay. And uh, we prefer not to discuss American politics at home. <laughs> okay, maybe uh, you don't have to. You don't have to say anything. I don't want to create uh, uh, issues in your in your marriage. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, speaking uh, on a serious note, uh, you know, Trump made a lot of uh, good things for the country. I mean, really, economically, the the the, the United States went through COVID uh, pandemic that led to uh, so many countries to, uh, you know, economic collapse and decline. Uh, the, it's not the case for the U.S. Uh, economically, uh, the United States actually went through pandemic, I think, because of Trump's measures okay. very, very well. Uh, so that's, that's one side of Trump's administration. The other side that you were talking about is mostly uh, political and I would say ideological even to some extent, even though I don't like this word. Uh, for me personally, uh, I, I was a little bit ashamed when the US president, or a little bit is uh, not correct word, I was ashamed when the US president said that uh, press is enemy of the people. Uh, 
because uh, primarily because I'm Russian and because this phrase was used by Stalin. And uh, uh, for me to explain how can a leader of the major democracy in the world say something like this uh, to a Russian person who would like Russia to be a part of the world and a part of the democratic society uh, of the world is very, very difficult. Uh, so for me, it was just, Hor frankly horrible uh, when I heard it. And that's what I will remember about Trump's years in the office forever. All right. Uh, Hannah, what about you for COVID and Trump, the two wonderful topics that we have discussed over the past few years? Yeah, and then like one one hour later, we're still discussing it, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, a, an endless, I, I would say, topic. Um, I would just briefly add because um, I, I think it's kind of clear we, we we all well, Rina already explained what what you know how how the the pandemic was also perceived, I think, in our countries and how we saw the situation uh, developing uh, abroad. Um, the only thing I would like to add, uh, because while many people were obviously dissatisfied and um, criticized their governments for how they handled the, the pandemic, but what was interesting in Belarus, uh, it's actually the comparison. There was this, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, sociological research apparently, but um, uh, there was this um, excellent uh, kind of data that showed that Belarusians assessed their government's reaction to um, to to the pandemic and then the handling of the pandemic as one of the most insufficient in the world, so 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 they kind of um, you know compared it and 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 they just were uh, I think Turkey was the first one and then Belarus so it's just kind of interesting to see that uh, Belarusians um, you know were were completely unhappy and and just thought that their leadership is is indifferent and incompetent which was true uh when it comes to um uh, when it comes to obviously and propaganda uses the uh, uses it i see all the time how state media uh, you know uh, publish data about um yeah from from other countries that oh these many people died the, this many people got infected here and in, and you know in poland and lithuania in the us and and they they are really happy to describe problems around the world and challenges that those countries are facing. But it's just interesting. They do not kind of reveal the real information about their country and about <laughs> the course, statistics yeah. in Belarus. Um, and when it comes to Trump, um, um, I would say that uh, whatever whatever happened in the U.S. Uh, was gave a reason to Lukashenko to again, kind of deploy his propaganda, right? And to say that, uh, you know, you see the problems in the US, but but we, uh, we are a stable country and it's all fine here and we really care about about our people and so on. And when there were, um, you know, this um, um, uh, incident, I would say, when people wanted to um, um, just, um, the attack on the capital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, I'm forgetting words. Uh, it was also used by, by Lukashenko. He said that, oh, you see, um, the repressions in Belarus are not that bad. You see what's happening in the US. Um, and I would never allow the same to happen in Belarus. 
So I would never allow people to attack the government building, which actually never happened in Belarus. The protests were peaceful. Um, so he also kind of mentioned, Lukashenko mentioned the uh, the election results in the US and kind of all these conspiracy theories that the election was rigged. And he was saying that, oh, you see, um, they also have you know, questions about the, the election results and so on. So it's just kind of, this is to show that whatever happens um, around the world, whatever problems the world has, and, you know, it's just been completely kind of misused and misinterpreted and miscommunicated to, um, yeah, state media by, by Lukashenko and, and to, to Belarusians. It, it really seems like one of the more lasting damages beyond the partisan uh, uh, rhetoric or partisan fighting in the US, the, the lasting damage uh, that Trump has done is the image of the US and the way it's being used outside of the US. Certainly my image of the US has changed and it will take a lot to 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 change it back, I think. And I, I'm sure it's the case for, for many people. Um, All right. Well, thank you very much to both of you for agreeing to spend a little bit of, of time with me and with us. Um, before we go, would you mind uh, telling the listeners where they can find more uh, about what you do and maybe your, your Twitter accounts? If, if you use Twitter, that's what we usually link to in the, in the show notes. Uh, Irina, can you, can you let us know? Uh, well, I have two Twitter accounts on my phone uh, and... Uh... I would uh, recommend not to go to my personal uh, because I'm not using it that much, but uh, to go to Radio Svoboda, uh, Twitter or RFERL, Twitter in English. And uh, uh, basically RFERL uh, reflect uh, everything that goes on in our countries, uh, not only in Russia, but all over the former Soviet Union and Iran uh, and Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, so it's RFERL.org. Uh, the website and Twitter RFERL. It's sorry, RFERL. Yes. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Thank you very much. The link will be in the show notes, of course. Uh, Hannah, what about yourself? Yeah, so I publish uh, um, at the Atlantic Council, so you can also uh, find my articles there um, on their website. And my Twitter is Hanna Lubakova, which is my name and last name, and you can easily find it. Excellent. It will also be, of course, in the show notes. Uh, thank you to both of you. For me, it's not Patrick on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc., etc. You can find all the links to everything I do on notpatrick.com. And that includes the Patreon for the Phileas Club, uh, patreon.com slash the Phileas Club. The link is also in the show notes. If you wish to uh, support what I do here, then uh, you can become a patron and support the show financially. And I thank everyone who already does. Thank you again both. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back hopefully soon. I do have a second child coming in a couple of weeks, so I don't know what's going to happen in April. It's going to be crazy, but uh, I'll do my best to be back very soon. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.